pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together uh, as a body of believers to come and worship you, to come and study your word, the same truths that we're reminded from scripture of your goodness, uh, that our anchor is Christ, that Christ is our foundation. <clears throat> it is through him and in him alone that we have relationship with you. Sinners who have rebelled against you, sinners who were enemies of yours. And through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, through faith in him alone, we have been justified, we have been declared righteous, we have been adopted, you have gifted us with your spirit. Now we are your children. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for that reality. We thank you for our greatest need to be met through Christ. Help that truth to be weighed upon our hearts this morning and help us to worship you rightly. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that you've blessed us with. The true biblical saving faith that we saw last week in our text is, and again we'll see Today, that it is manifested in good works, which you have prepared beforehand. And ultimately, through that, we are sanctified, we are conformed to our Lord, and you get all glory, honor, and praise. So we thank you and praise you for that. I do pray that you bless our time this morning. I pray that you would give us clarity and understanding of your word all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me begin by posing some questions to you this morning, questions to ponder. How do you know that the faith that you profess is real? How do you know that it is genuine? Is it because you prayed a prayer once in the past? Is it because someone you trust has assured you that you possess a true faith, that you are a true, genuine believer? Is it because your family is a Christian? Is it because you attend this church and are a member of this church? Is it because you have been baptized? Is it because you do good works? You do charity. You help the poor in need. How do you know that the faith that you profess is genuine? It's true. It is the biblical faith. See, this is an important question for us to consider. 
Because how you answer this question determines whether you are truly in Christ or not. It determines your eternal destiny, whether you are going to heaven to be with Christ forever or to hell, apart from him, apart from him. Sadly, there is such a faith that is found in the church that is false, a faith that is condemning. Jesus encountered many such people with superficial faith, superficial believers. In the Gospel of John, we read again and again that many believed in him only to find out that they did not profess a true faith. One example is in John 2. You remember in John 2, Jesus performs his first sign at the wedding in Cana. From there, he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. And in John 23, John writes, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. And then he writes, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not entrust himself to them because they did not belong to him. He knew their heart. They did not profess the true biblical faith. They only acknowledged it. They were amazed by the signs that he was doing. But they did not believe in him as Lord and Savior over their lives. They were not true disciples of Christ because they did not obey his words. Instead, this was a false faith, a condemning faith, a faith that does not save. So you see, this is a very important question for us to consider. How do you know that the faith that you profess, if you do, is a true and genuine faith? You see, in our text, James addresses this very topic. He addresses the topic because he has concerns for those he is writing to. There are some, likely he believes, that profess a faith that is contrary to the one found in the pages of Scripture. One that is common in the church. Externally, it may appear to be right, but James highlights that it's not. It's false, and it is condemning. And so he begins to communicate the difference between a false faith and a true biblical faith. In James 2, verses 14 through 26. Let me read our text for us. And let me begin by reading in verse 18. You follow along. 
James writes, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you're willing, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fella, fellow, that fate without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was, credit, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The theme of these verses is this. True saving faith manifests itself in good works, whereas professing faith devoid of good works is no faith at all. True saving faith manifests itself in good works, whereas professing faith devoid of good works is no faith at all. He demonstrates this truth by contrasting two types of faith that is found in the church. Last week, we considered the first type in verses 14 through 19, which was a condemning faith. We considered the type of faith that does not save we looked at a condemning faith, which is only characterized by words. It is professed with one's lips, but is not lived out. It is empty. Those who hold such a faith say that they are saved, but there's no pattern of obedience in their lives. James states in verse 17 that such a faith is dead. It has no power to save. We also saw in verse 18 a hypothetical question raised by James, which he likely anticipated. The objection was that faith and works can be separated. He was telling James, you have faith and I have works. Look, I believe. My works don't need to validate that. And James responded by making this point. There's no way to prove that you have faith without works. That's why in verse 18 he said, show me your faith without the works. The implication is you can't. It's impossible. You can only show true saving faith by good works. Through obedience to God's word. And that's why he stated, I will show you my faith by my works. 
because that's the only way to prove it. In verse 19, we saw an example of condemning faith. One that is professed or just believed in without any works. And he said, such a faith is demonic. Demons believe in the one true God. They have orthodox belief. But they are condemned. Because they are not willing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have cognitive understanding. There's no transformation in their lives. There's no fruit. Now with that context, we come to our verses this morning from 20 to 26. And today, James is going to continue to respond to that hypothetical objection made in verse 18. He's beginning to res- he began to respond to it in verse 18 and 19, and he will continue to do so all the way to verse 26. And as we begin to see that, we see a second type of faith that's found in the church, and that is a saving faith. A saving faith. And the point is, There is only one true, genuine faith. There's only one true faith. And that is always accompanied by good works. It is accompanied by obedience to God's word. Now just to remind you that James' goal is not to communicate how one is saved. Rather, he's focused on how you can tell someone has a saving faith. And so the relationship is this. You are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. You can tell someone has true faith. You can tell that you yourself has true biblical faith if works follow, good works That is obedience to God's word, a submission to him. So let's begin by looking at James 20. James writes, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, fellow, that faith without works is useless? See, after showing how faith cannot be shown apart from works, he presses this hypothetical objector with this question. Are you finally willing to recognize, to to acknowledge? This is not necessarily about understanding intellectually. Rather, he's asking, are you now willing to humbly acknowledge and accept the truth that has been presented? Are you willing to see that the faith that you profess is false because it is not accompanied by works? And he calls this person a foolish fellow. Again, this is not something related to uh, intellectual understanding. Rather, there's a moral component to this. 
that this person is spiritually bankrupt. He is morally evil. Such a, ber- such a person lives in rebellion against God's word. And so thus calls him a fool. And so because of his rebellion, he lives in resistance to the truth that is presented to him. And so James calls him foolish. And he asks him to acknowledge and accept that faith without works is useless. He's saying, can you finally accept this reality or do you need more proof? See, the faith that you possess that is to the objector, imaginary objector, is false. It cannot save. There's no saving value. And I've shown it to you through the arguments presented. Now, with this question, he begins to introduce his final argument. He has made the point that faith without works is dead. And he has provided illustrations of that. He has also responded to the objections in verse 18 and 19. And now he will present two positive illustrations that supports his case. James gives two illustrations that give, that give light to the fact that saving faith, that is the true biblical faith in Christ, is always accompanied by works of obedience in the lives of Christians. Two illustrations. And the first one that James provides is of the patriarch Abraham. The patriarch Abraham. You see, James did not just give any example. He goes back to the Old Testament to an important historical figure. He went back to Abraham to show the linkage between true biblical faith and good works. Look at verse 21. He writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Here James, as we've seen again and again, asks another rhetorical question where the answer is, of course, yes. That is, Abraham indeed was justified by works. Now, I want to tell you that the verses that follow is very difficult to interpret in the sense that a lot of ink has been spilled. And so it's important to understand what James means when he uses the word justified by works. Now, if we were to come to this passage without really considering the context, it would be easy for us to think that he is, James is using the word justification the same way Paul does. And so if that's the case, then we would see that there is a definite conflict between what James is saying here and what Paul says in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Because there... Paul says 
that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. There, Paul is referring to when he uses the word to justify, he's using it as a legal justification, what theologians call forensic justification. It is a legal pronouncement of righteousness before God. When someone comes to saving faith in Christ, at that moment, he is declared righteous before God. He's no longer guilty. He has been forgiven. He has been made right before the one true God. His standing is right. And so in that context, we can say to be justified means to be saved. Is that what James is referring to here is the question in our text? If so, then there would be a contradiction. There would be a conflict. But if you consider the context, I don't believe that is how he's using the word. James is using it in another sense. So the question is, in what way does James uses this word. In what sense? You see, the word has multiple senses. The first one, as I've already shown, and the way Paul uses it is a legal pronouncement of righteousness. That's how he uses it in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. The other sense is that of vindication. To vindicate something. The idea is to show, to to prove that something is true, something is genuine. For example, Jesus uses this word in this sense in Matthew eleven nineteen. There, Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Same Greek word. True wisdom is shown or demonstrated by its actions that arise from it. In this context, James is using it in that sense. Remember the context. The emphasis is not about how one is saved. That is Paul's focus. Here, James is focused on evidence of true saving faith. How we can know you have true saving faith. And that is through good works, through obedience to God's word. This supports what James says all throughout this passage. In in verse 18, he said, I will show you my faith by my works. My works will will validate my faith. It will vindicate it. It will prove to be true. So here James is not contradicting Paul. Rather, they are in agreement. They're battling two different battles. Paul is battling legalism. James is battling antinomianism. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Now, 
what specifically does James point to in Abraham's life that vindicated his faith? The supreme demonstration of Abraham's justification occurred when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Abraham experienced salvation in Genesis 15, as we'll see soon. But in Genesis 22, on Mount Moriah, he exhibited the validity of that faith when he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story. Let me kind of do a survey so that we have the context. Let me go back first to Genesis 12. There, we see God call Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans, from the land of Ur. And God promises Abraham a few things. One of those things is that he would be the father of a great nation, which included a promise of a son through whom many descendants would come. Ultimately, the Messiah would come through that descendant. In Genesis 15, about 10 years or so later, still no children, God says to Abraham, he reaffirms that promise from Genesis 12, by saying that his descendants will be as many as the stars are in the sky. Again, this is a reaffirmation of that promise. And then Abraham responds in Genesis 15, 6, this way. Moses writes, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Here we see that Moses is communicating that Abraham was justified by faith alone. That is, he was declared righteous before God. And this is what James quotes, sorry, not James, Paul quotes in Romans to defend justification by faith alone. And then fast forward to Genesis 21. We see that Isaac is born about 14 years after Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 22, which is about 30 years after Genesis 15, where he was declared righteous, we come to the passage that James refers to in James 2.21. In James 22.1, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. That's important to keep in mind. And said to him, And Abraham said to him, here I am. Verse 2, he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And in verse 3, we see that he obeyed God. He got up. He traveled to the location, which was a few days' journey. There he built the altar, he arranged the woods, he tied up his son and laid him on the altar. And then he stretched out his hand to slay his son out of obedience to God, but then we see God intervened and stopped him. 
Genesis 22:11 says, but the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 12, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see, Abraham's faith through obedience was vindicated, justified. It was proven to be true. It was proven to be genuine. And this is what James is referring to in our text. Abraham's faith was vindicated through his supreme act of obedience, even to the point of offering his only son, the promised son, to God. Hebrews tells us that he believed God even to the point that he believed if he had sacrificed his son, that God would raise him up. Why? Because God promised him in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 that he would have, he would be the father of a great nation. Because of his genuine faith, he consistently obeyed God even to the point of sacrificing his own son. And notice how he develops this further in our text in verse 22. James writes, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. When Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar, James is saying that Abraham's faith was working with his work. They were working together. They weren't separated like the guy in verse 18 is objecting to. They were cooperating. They were working together. Really, the point is that you cannot separate true biblical faith with works. Works will always accompany faith. They're distinct from one another, but works always accompanies true saving faith. For example, they are like love and marriage. Love, you can distinguish from marriage, but love often leads to marriage. If a man truly loves a woman, what does he do? He marries her. If he's able to, he marries her. Love leads to marriage. In that sense, it is inseparable. In the same way, works and faith, or faith and works, they're distinct, but they are inseparable. You cannot have true faith without works. Now, one thing I want to point out is that we've seen that they are inseparable. The tense of the verb that he uses was working here suggests that that working union between faith and works was not just confined to that moment at the very beginning, to the moment when Abraham believed in Genesis 15. Rather, it characterized Abraham's life of faith. His faith continued to remain active from Genesis 15 all the way to Genesis 22. 
So the point is, true faith is inseparable with works, but it is active and it characterizes the believer. Again, this is not perfection. But from the moment you come to saving faith in life, in, in Christ, the direction of your life changes. You're conforming more and more to Christ. You've been born again. You've been transformed. You have new desires. And so you're conforming daily to the image of Christ. And that is what characterizes the believer. So let me ask you personally, <clears throat> if you examine your life, can you say that this is true of you? Does this describe your faith that you profess? Like Abraham, as you look back into your life, have you seen your faith produce good works? Works of obedience to God's word? A love for him, a love for his people, a desire to know him through his word, a desire to submit to him, unlike the demons? Is your faith vindicated by your works, shown to be true and genuine? Abraham's faith was working in this way. And thus, it was vindicated. And it ours should be also. Now James, at the end of verse 22, says... And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. The word perfected is not necessarily that he had become sinless or without sin. The Greek word means to, to bring something to fruition, to bring something to its intended goal. So when James says Abraham's faith was perfected here by works, his meaning that it had reached its intended goal. It produced godly fruit for which it was designed. If you plant a tree, say an orange tree, and you water it, over time it grows, and over years, I'm not a planter, obviously, but over years it begins to bear fruit, you begin to see oranges on that tree, it has reached its intended goal. In the same way, when our faith produces good works, it reaches its intended goal, which God has designed. That's what he says in Ephesians. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Let me just read beginning in verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The faith that God has gifted us with, the intended goal of that is good works. And ultimately to bring God glory, honor, and praise and in Abraham's example, his faith resulted in obedience. 
his faith was brought to its intended goal. <clears throat> it continued to grow, grow as he continued to, to seek to be obedient to God, even to the point of sacrificing his one and only son. And as a result, moreover in verse 23, James writes, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credit, it reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Here James quotes Genesis 15, 6. And as I've mentioned, this is when Abraham was declared righteous by faith alone before God. The verb was, was reckoned is in the passive. The implication is that God is the subject, that righteousness was credited to Abraham's account by God because of faith, showing that he was saved by faith alone. He was saved at that moment. And so Abraham, at that point, was declared righteous. But his, his faith was vindicated later in Genesis 22 when he offered his son on the altar. <clears throat> the question is, in what way here, what way was Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac on the altar a fulfillment of Genesis 15.6? Here, the, the word fulfilled is not a fulfillment of prophecy. It is often used that way in the New Testament, but here, it is not because Genesis 15, 6, if you read it, it's a narrative. It's telling us what happened. There's no prediction or prophecy that is being made. So in what way is it fulfilled? It is, a, it is fulfilled in the sense that his faith, again, was proven to be true. His faith was proven to be genuine. It followed a life of active obedience, which culminated in, in the ultimate expression of offering his one and only son. His faith was inseparable from good works. And again, this fits the argument that James is making in this text, that true biblical faith must be accompanied by works. Moses says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed and he was declared righteous before God. His faith continued to blossom throughout the years up to the ultimate act of offering his son in Genesis 22. At that point, his faith was vindicated. And because he had true and genuine faith, James adds that he was a friend of God. And this is an allusion to, to Second, Chron Second Chronicles 20, verse 7. Isaiah also makes this point. And what an amazing statement to be called a friend of God. What a privilege. Abraham was called a friend of God because he possessed genuine true faith, which was vindicated by his works. And friends, the reality is this is true of us as well. We too are called friends of God. 
if we possess true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is manifested by obedience. Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you. And the reality is, if you possess true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will desire to obey your Lord Jesus Christ. You will seek to obey him. You will desire to love him. You will desire to honor him. You will desire to conform to Christ, ultimately for his glory. Such a person is called a friend of God. So Abraham was the first illustration James used to show that true saving faith vindicated was vindicated by good works. But before we move on to the second illustration in verse 25, James reiterates his point again in verse 24. It's kind of like a concluding statement, an inference after what he has said regarding Abraham. Look at verse 24. It says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now again, if you pluck this verse outside of his context, you will conclude that he is contradicting, James is contradicting Paul. And many conclude that. Because James, because Paul in Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. You see, a simple reading would make you think that they are at odds against one another. But that is not true. We've already seen how James has used the word justify in this context we know what James is doing here. He has a different goal from Paul. Paul was communicating how we are saved. It is through faith we're declared righteous. And James is talking about how we can know that we have true saving faith. It is if we show works, obedience to God's word. And so when you have that context in mind, they're not contradicting one another. And so when James says here that a man is justified by works, he's just saying he is vindicated by works. That is, his faith is shown to be true. There's works if, if works accompany it. And then he adds not by faith alone. And here, again, we need to keep in mind the context. Here, he's not talking about true saving faith. Here, he's referring to the dead faith that he's already articulated and critiqued and condemned. The faith that he has already attacked He's referring to that faith. That faith cannot save. 
That faith that is devoid of works, as we've seen in verse 14, that faith that is dead, as James points, points out in verse 17 and again in 26, the faith that is useless that he points out in verse 20, that is the faith that he's referring to here in, 20, in, verses, in verse 24. And the reality is it's true. That faith cannot save. That faith by itself will not save. It will condemn you. So one is vindicated, justified by works and not by that faith that is just mere words. Now this brings us to a second illustration that proves that saving faith is always accompanied by works and that is the harlot Rahab. We've, We've considered the patriarch Now the harlot, Rahab. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? See here, the second person that James uses to illustrate justification by works is probably one of the most unexpected, especially to a Jewish reader. He could have used Isaac. He could have used Joseph. Even Joshua. They would have said amen to that. Instead, he used Rahab, the harlot. And with him choosing Rahab to show her faith, it shows that true saving faith can save any type of person. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't even matter your history. If you come to true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture says you will be saved. And the evidence of that will be the manifestation of good works. James says, was not her faith justified by works? That is, her faith was vindicated she was deemed to be true. It was deemed to be true and genuine. And how did that faith manifest itself in works? James says, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You see, her faith was confirmed, recorded in Joshua 2, <clears throat> when she helped the spies as they came to spy out the land. She helped them, she protected them and made sure that they were able to get back safely. You're familiar with the story. Rahab was a Gentile woman. She was a Canaanite, a harlot, a prostitute. But when she heard the reports about the God of the Israelites, the one true God, how he rescued the nation of Israel from the Egyptians, how he divided the Red Sea, she came to believe in this God. She acknowledged that the God of Israel is in fact the one true God. In Joshua 2.11, she says, When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above, and on earth beneath. 
And this belief of hers in God was manifested when she received the two messengers, two spies. She protected them. She hid them so that they would be spared. Keep in mind, when she did this, she risked her own life. This act confirmed that her faith in the one true God was real and genuine. She did not just profess it. It was manifested in her works. And so her works vindicated the fact that she had genuine faith. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. See, she was obedient to God. Now, after giving these two examples of true, genuine faith, which vindicated their faith by their works, James ends this section in verse 26. It's a final statement concerning this topic. A summary statement. He says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Such a faith that has no works is a condemning faith, as we've discussed in verses 14 through 19. And he compares it to a dead body, a corpse. A corpse has no sign of life. There's no activity. It's lifeless. It's dead. And for those who have a faith devoid of works, he's saying your faith is dead. Your faith is not the true biblical faith. It's rotten like a corpse. It's smelly. There's no life with such a faith. That Faith cannot save you. The only faith that can is manifested in good works. Again, I want to be clear. Works do not save. Works only show that someone possesses true saving faith. They're always accompanied. They're always related. They're inseparable cannot have faith without works. Now, as we close this morning, this passage really calls us to examine our hearts. Examine our profession of faith. Examine whether what we profess is true, genuine faith, Or is it the dead faith? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. This is important that we examine our hearts. Examine if we hold to this faith, faith that is accompanied by works. If you do not hold to this biblical faith, know that you are heading to a future 
where you're going to be separated from God. You'll be heading to hell. That faith cannot save you. And my plea to you, as James has argued again and again, that you would return to him, that you would come to him in repentance, that you would humble yourself and beg him to save you. And the, re- the reality is we serve a God who is willing to receive. And if you come to him humbly, he will save you. He will gift you with faith, the true biblical faith that will be manifested in good works. My plea to you is that you would come to him this morning if that's you. Now, if you have examined your heart and you've seen that there is evidence of faith in your life, you've seen a transformation in your life, that your life is different from before you profess that faith, then I hope that you're encouraged this morning. And my encouragement is that you would excel still more for the glory of God. That you would desire to bring praise to him, that you would desire to love him, that you desire to love others, ultimately for his glory. And that's my prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage. It's just so rich with truths. We just thank you. We're just thankful for the clarity uh, in how James communicates what true saving faith looks like as he contrasts it with dead faith. And I do pray for those here uh, who are not in Christ that you would work in their lives, that you would draw them to you, that they would repent and put their faith and trust in you. And for those who are in Christ and who are, that you would continue to encourage them and that you would help them to excel still more for the glory of your name. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.